miss the show, no worries, on point and on this podcast. The Prime Minister back on the job after a two-week holiday, but he didn't come back today announcing any grand plan to get ahead of this latest crisis. Oh, no, no, no. And, of course, we get a pep talk. A pep talk. Never a plan, just a pep talk. We will talk about a tale of two different provinces within Ontario, and we'll talk about the divide when it comes to things like job growth and prosperity in urban centres versus the suburbs. And it's very clear by new data that's come out that there are two very different economies in Ontario, one of the haves, those who are basically being left behind. Those in charge, of course, keep telling us that we need to be wartime ready to deal with this pandemic, but, you know, with our hospitals bursting at the seams... We've got unions and special interests coming out and fighting for what they want. How could we ever have a healthcare system to be wartime ready if everyone else has something they want to push their own agenda? And we will talk about this. And parents who are completely stretched trying to do work while teaching kids online. I mean, imagine being the parent of a child with autism or special needs. What's in place to support them? We get the announcements that there are supports when the reality is they are on their own and being completely forgotten. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We have to hunker down. We have to pull together. And it gets better in a few months. We're looking at a better spring as long as we all keep doing our part. Oh yeah, look, the Prime Minister comes back to work and, you know, offers us a nifty little pep talk. Of course, never a plan. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, January the 5th. Hello there, great to have you along here, and uh, I'd ask you how you are, but I already know, because we are all living in the same kind of hell. Kids are living it, businesses being destroyed by it. Today was, uh, today was tough for a lot of people because you get the added strain of hooking back online. But as far as Justin Trudeau is concerned, you know, just hunker down again, just another few tough months, and then we get a nice spring. I mean, how many times do we have to hear this? Is this like our, is this the life we get? Oh yeah, crappy winters for eight months, but you know, if you just do what you're told and, you know, allow us to keep failing, you might get a nice spring. Drop that talking point. I'm done with it. I gotta say, I watch these press conferences. I watch them a lot. I have to watch them. It's part of my job. But I get so annoyed by them. You know, this guy just took a two-week break. He's a G7 leader whose country's on fire. So these press conferences are just a complete charade. I think I find them insulting to Canadians because they offer little more than, you know, talking points that the politicians want to push out. You know, and here we do all the heavy lifting. And then they offer us just BS, meaningless spin like this answer he gave. There's no magic bullet on this. None of us want to be here right now, but we know what to do to get through it, and I know Canadians will continue to do it. Even though we're tired, even though we're frustrated, we can get through this together. Uh-huh. Yeah, look, I-, I don't need a pep talk, and I doubt you do too, from a guy who shares none of our frustrations. What we need is basic leadership that has yet to appear on any level of government during this crisis. Albeit, I'll, I'll give the municipal level because they actually do give out some good information. But, you know, we have been promised over and over and over again, you know, this is almost behind us. We're almost there. Just dig a little deeper. And yet here we are locked down. So what we should have heard today from Trudeau is, hey, we got a plan. And just nothing but let's just all work together. We've got 
hospitals imploding across several provinces. We've got health staff completely burned out, completely burned out. Kids losing their education. Parents are losing it. And of course, the businesses are just being ravaged. We are not getting through this together. Because we do the heavy lifting to answer these calls from politicians who keep telling us, you know, this is a wartime effort, and yet none of them ever show urgency when it's needed. They all knew at all levels that this wave was coming weeks ago. They also know our health care is basically held together by Band-Aids. They also knew that locking down would mean businesses need help. So I'd love to know, what did all these guys and gals do during their lengthy winter break? Like, what did the finance minister do? Christopher Freeland has known that all the federal programs are gone. And just now, are she and the Ford government cobbling up supports that they've announced, but they haven't been created? That takes time. And so here we've got all these small businesses being completely kicked around through no fault of their own, and now they're going to have to wait weeks for money they can't wait for. Not to mention, it's a hell of a lot less now than it was before, and their need is way, way, way more. I mean, did no one on Team Trudeau think, you know, two years in and three lockdowns, maybe this would be a good idea to get the team together and come up with a, replant, you know, a response plan that actually works so that we can get all these tools they tell us to, to get to the people. I mean, clearly not, because what we got today was we're going to have a better spring. Not a plan. And I know, provinces are responsible for the rollout of health policies, which has been very convenient for the Trudeau government because the provinces take all the blame. But when your house is on fire, you don't deliver a pat-on-the-back speech. You become a leader, and you bring water. You come out, and you tell Canadians who are exhausted and stressed out and getting their kids online and wondering how they're going to pay the bills, you come out and you say, look, we've talked to the premiers over the break and collectively we've come up with an emergency plan, a plan where the military will be called into action to, you know, shore up things like health delivery to maybe give the nurses and frontline staff a break, military to get vaccines in the arms of the most, most vulnerable and the sick before this wave crests. All I heard today was we've got all these tools and we've got lots of tools. We just don't have anyone to operate the tools and get the tools to us fast enough because we are always reactive in the response. So these shots are not going to get into arms anytime soon. Trudeau and Premier Ford, they all know that third shots will slow hospitalizations. will get kids and teachers back to class, stave off these labor shortages that we're seeing. And yet here we are. So it's great. I'm glad that Trudeau and all his political pals, you all get to go and get your shots and smile pretty for the camera. It's us plebs who pay for these people who then get forced to wait for weeks for an available shot that's never available or wait, wait lines in, in the cold. The demand is there. The delivery is not because, oh yeah, those in charge at either the federal or provincial level never think ahead. I mean, if we're in a wartime effort, you know, if this were a war, we'd be decimated. We just would. So dare I agree with Stephen Del Duca, who says, you know, Ford should have called Trudeau to get the military in. I mean, it's very sad that that even needs to be recommended, <laughs> suggesting the obvious. Never mind that those in charge remain so reactive all the time that we just get brought to this never-ending brink of collapse.
And I don't know if you actually know or, or see what's going on in Quebec, but their utter lack of incompetence in dealing with this gone show has actually led to martial law. Because when I saw this video, I was disgusted. But this is what Quebecers hear as they're locked down and dealing with curfews once it gets dark. You are ordered between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. to be at your residence or the grounds of that residence. Refusal to obey either of these orders makes you liable to a fine ranging from There you 1, go. We are not in China. This is happening in a democratic country, and I find it appalling. And <laughs> it's happening because those in charge, the politicians... They don't do their job, so they just freely take away our rights and then say, well, we have to do it because of health. And then for some reason, we just kind of shrug. Now Quebec is saying, well, you have to have a vaccine passport to buy booze and pots. I mean, that's their big up yours to the people who don't get vaccinated. Well, hello? Are they that stupid? They do know there's a black market, right? And you don't need a vaccine passport to buy pot, dummies. These politicians seem to forget they work for us. We pay them a lot of money to do their jobs, and they're not doing them. And that's keeping us in this never-ending reactive cycle that no matter what we do, staying distanced, wearing masks, locking down, kids online, shots in the arm, all 30 of them are probably going to have to get, none of that ever leads anywhere other than lockdown, which is costing us lives and business and freedoms and band-aids of billions in fixes. So, like, spare me the pep talk on how life will be better in the spring. I, I just, I'm so done with the political spin on action that we know is not being taken. Someone actually has to start leading and stop making reactive policy to pander to votes. Because at this point, I don't know about you, I couldn't vote for any politician in this country today. Albeit Patrick Brown, I think, is one of the few that's actually doing a pretty good job. Speaking of uh, leadership, can someone f tell me where the hell the education minister is? Like, where is he? Has anyone seen Minister Lecce? I, it's not like I need, I don't need a pep talk from him either. But he is the guy who closed down schools. And he bloody well should have shown his face in the last couple of weeks, uh, if not today, to assure parents that he actually has a plan to get kids back in classes. That in two weeks that we're not going to get another call to say, oh yeah, we just have to put a few HEPA filters in. I'm just going to install them myself. Or, oh yeah, we're still ordering math. I don't want to hear that crap. What he should have done today is said, here's the plan. Here's what we're doing. Here's the timeline. That did not happen. That's a failure of leadership. Because you can convince me, I guess, that the shutdown's needed because of the schools. I don't know. It might be a tough sell. But you cannot tell me that it is not harming kids. But where the hell is he? Alrighty, great to have you here on this uh, Wednesday night. You know, I have always thought that there's a growing divide in this province where those outside the GTA kind of feel like they have no voice and are often ignored by the decision makers who always focus on Vote Rich 905. Well, there's an interesting report that Fraser Institute has put out where they kind of confirm this, revealing that when it comes to job growth in and around the GTA over the last decade, Toronto and Ottawa have had huge growth while smaller rural areas just kind of keep falling Behind, And when you look at the numbers, the GTA drew, uh, grew by 21.7% over 2008 to 2019. 
So it almost doubled the national average of 11.9%. In Ottawa and surrounding areas, it was also strong at 16.1%. But then you go into areas of the manufacturing regions. You look to Thunder Bay, Peterborough, Windsor, and London, and job growth through that whole same period shrunk almost to 10%. So there's a real divide. Ben Eisen is Senior Fellow in Fiscal and Provincial Prosperity Studies, a former Director of Provincial Prosperity, and he is with the Fraser Institute. Good to have you, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So your study basically reveals what I think most people know is that Ontario has very uh, two very different economies. One is the haves, the other are the falling behind. Yeah, I think that's a very fair characterization. Uh, we've had a period for a long period of time uh, in which there was relatively dynamic uh, job growth and job creation uh, taking place in Toronto uh, and in the immediately surrounding area, and then to uh, a lesser extent, uh, but still there in Ottawa, so the two capitals, the federal and uh, provincial capitals. But then there's other parts of the province uh, that are quite, uh, quite heavily populated, not compared to Toronto, but compared to most parts of, the Canada, of Canada, mm-hmm. places like southwestern Ontario, eastern Ontario, uh, and northern Ontario that we're experiencing almost no job growth at all. And in some cases, we don't have as good data as we'd like, but experiencing very little household income growth uh, as well, as, as far at least as the data that we have can tell us. So it really has created a disconnect, I think, in Ontario, in which people in Toronto and to some extent Ottawa uh, feel they're living in in prosperous jurisdictions, whereas for a long time, people in other parts of the province have been looking around, seeing all the economic pain around them and feeling like it isn't even being noticed. Well, right, right. And that would speak to the, you know, kind of irritation and anger a lot of people outside of the GT, and I, maybe GTHA, feel where it's like, mm. we're voting in people, but we don't have a voice and we're the ones who aren't reaping the rewards. So there's there's where you get the um, the anger. But um, am I right to assume then the decimation of the manufacturing uh, sector in these regions? Because I'm looking at these smaller areas. These are the manufacturing hubs that have disappeared over the last, uh, you know, decade and a half. Is Is that why? I, I would have to say that, yes, that's the primary uh, driver of the results being as difficult as they are uh, in, in manufacturing reasons. And it actually started before 2008. Uh, right. The economic pain started to set in, but we measure since the uh, the recession itself. But absolutely, uh, manufacturing mm-hmm. jurisdictions uh, have been hit particularly hard. And, you know, the thing is, uh, one fundamental difference between Ontario and the other parts of, of Canada is that we're so populous that our sort of secondary uh, cities are still big places. Uh, so, you know, if you look at a place like, let's say, Nova Scotia, and you hear, okay, the job creation's happening in Halifax, well, <laughs> the rest of the place isn't that populated. Whereas if, in Ontario, the places that we've seen struggle so much uh, are big places with lots of Canadians. Uh, and it's not a small issue to dealing with a no- small number of people. Like London, Ontario, for instance, is about the yeah. same size as Halifax. Um, and and that's not, so the fact that it struggled so significantly is important. Southwestern Ontario as about as popular, uh, populous, excuse me, as the entire Atlantic region outside that's southwestern outside of the GTHA. Um, and, you know, we have entire regional development strategies. We have think tanks, all kinds of things about the productivity and economic challenges of economic of Atlantic Canada, uh, but not similar attention and concern so far, at least, uh, to the, what's going on in as populous a region as all of Atlantic Canada, which is southwestern Ontario, just for example, Northern Ontario and Eastern Ontario, also bigger than some provinces. So these are not empty places we're talking about. This is a lot of people, and to some extent, it's a lot of forgotten people when it comes to policymaking in this country. Right, exactly. Um, You know, but we do know, Ben, Toronto's expensive. The GTA Mm. is expensive. Most people are being priced out of this. They can't buy homes. So a lot of people, as we've seen in this pandemic, certainly, are shifting their way and saying, I'm going to go. 
but they've got to have a reason to go and there's got to be something there for them. And so if, if the takeaway and I'm in, in politics, if that if I'm looking at it, I say, well, look, I've got to create more opportunity because clearly people will go there. It's a way to address housing issues. But if there's no growth, people are going to go to these places and say, well, why did I come here? There's nothing here. Um, you know. And so this is going to take some leadership, but but people will go to these places, these smaller regions, if there's something to go to. Yes, and it's going to be very interesting to see, obviously, as you mentioned, there's some migration patterns that maybe were beginning already, but have been greatly accelerated by the pandemic. So it'll be interesting in the years ahead uh, to see what we what happens with respect to population growth in these uh, different cities across the, the uh, province, as well as in job creation. Uh, but you're certainly right. We want to make sure that there's opportunity. Uh, we want to make sure that there's economic growth, that there's job creation all across the province, and that it isn't so heavily concentrated in, in Toronto, because uh, that'll make a, a more prosperous Ontario overall. Uh, and we need to be conscious of it. We need to be aware, and we need to make sure that Ontarians are able to understand what's help happening in their province, uh, because there's many yeah. regions um, that, that, that are so disconnected from what's happening elsewhere uh, that it can sometimes uh, sometimes be hard to think of Ontario as one uh, cohesive province, because things are so different from place to place. Right. But these regions paid for a lot of this country uh, through many, many years, and they simply have been forgotten about. And, and you know, the Ford government, is, you know, has not solved the energy issues that were cropped up in the McGinty uh, win era. Uh, I mean, green energy is still very expensive. We subsidize the hell out of it so that we can afford it. This is what drove manufacturing out. And until those issues are solved, I don't know how you draw manufacturing and uh, investment into these areas, which is why I think we keep seeing you know, investment going into electric vehicles and all those things. But those are a long way off. You make such an important point about uh, the extent to which southwestern Ontario particularly was a driver of national economic growth for a very long time. Uh, with the vibrant manufacturing sector, uh, southwestern Ontario was helping drive growth. It was helping produce prosperity all throughout the country uh, in terms of creating more opportunities for interprovincial trade and things of that nature. So the decimation of the manufacturing sector in southwestern Ontario, particularly mm-hmm. uh, over the past, uh, well, almost 15, 20 years now, has been one of the most important economic stories uh, in Canada. It's one of the reasons why we've seen slower overall growth uh, and now that the energy sector uh, it's picking up now again, but it tends, it's had a tough patch. Uh, you, you've had difficulty in the energy sector out west, difficulty in the manufacturing sector uh, in Ontario, and that's a big part of why we've seen sluggish na- national growth uh, for a long period of time. So we need to start asking questions about what we need to do to attract investment to get the various the various regions of the economy uh, and province that haven't been succeeding and help them succeed again. Uh, because, as as you said, um, without that growth from southwestern Ontario, without growth from the energy sector in, in Alberta, which hopefully is picking up again, uh, you know, where's the growth going to come from? Debt. We're just going to grow the debt. The wrong thing. We don't want to grow the debt. We want to grow the economy. All right, Ben, interesting report, uh, but certainly puts kind of a face and uh, some data to this uh, issue that I think is not often talked about, but should be. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Have a nice evening. That is Ben Eisen, who's dug into this and has the data with the Fraser Institute. All righty, great to have you here back with us on a busy, busy day. You know, so we get told all the time, we've got to do our part. Politicians like to say we need this wartime effort to beat the virus. And yet two years later, three lockdowns in, we get pep talks. And you'd think maybe during their two-week break that the prime minister and politicians, you know, those in charge, might actually want to come up with a, a plan, like any plan. Some kind of plan. A plan, maybe, I don't know, expedite shots into arms, uh, shore up hospital supports, make sure businesses have aid. I mean, if we actually had to go to war and get war prepared with these bozos in charge, we'd go to the wrong battle. 
That's just the truth. David Redman is a retired lieutenant colonel, also the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management, Management Agency. He joins us a lot. Good to have you, David. Hi, Alex. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, I was very frustrated. I get frustrated watching these press conferences because after a while, you want them to say something. And so for the Prime Minister to come out today in a lockdown, parents going online with education again, like here we are in the same place we were in 2020 of March. Um, we never get a plan. At no time it does it look like anybody, like the premiers or the prime minister, decided, you know what, we should put our heads together now and come up with a new plan because what we're doing is not working. I totally agree. It's as if a plan is a dirty word. Um, we all know that uh, the first step in any process is to set the right aim, and the aim all along should have been to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on our country and on each of our provinces. Uh, if we had set that aim instead of minimizing the impact of COVID-19 on our medical system, uh, we probably would be free and clear of this pandemic like many other jurisdictions in the world. Yeah, one of the challenges, uh, it works politically for, um, you know, uh, against each other. But, you know, one of the big problems in this pandemic is that the federal government does things like the procuring, procuring, um, you know, they buy the vaccines, they deal with border issues and that kind of stuff. But it's the provinces that roll out the health. I mean, the feds pay for it. We pay for it. The feds give the payments. But it's the provinces that deliver these services. And so you got the provinces that are stuck doing all the heavy lifting. A prime minister who's like, well, uh, you know, shame on them. So he can kind of hide behind them. But what we need, clearly, is for them to work together to get a plan. And so what I would like to have heard from the Prime Minister is, look, we're going to expedite things of getting shots into arms, bring in the military, set up some sites. I mean, clearly we're not working at a wartime effort speed. And I know you don't like that talking point, but that is what they keep saying is that we're in this wartime effort, but we go, we get no urgency. So, so I want to take you and your listeners back to first principles. Number one, a pandemic is a provincial responsibility, healthcare being a provincial responsibility. And the only people who can walk us out of this mess are the premiers. And the very first principle in a pandemic is to care for those most at risk. Over 93% of all the deaths in Canada have happened in our seniors who have severe comorbidities, average age 82, average number of comorbidities 2.8. If back in March of 2020, we had actually focused protection on those who are most at risk and had dealt with that issue, we potentially could have seen at least half less deaths than we've seen. COVID yeah. is not any more deadly for people under the age of 60 than seasonal influenza. So there is no reason for lockdowns. There is no reason for children not to be in schools. And the People who are under 60 without severe comorbidities should have lived their lives without fear. The damage that we've done has been caused by lockdowns, not by COVID. Now, just, just focusing on that fact that the, the, the deaths have occurred in our seniors, we know each of the viruses at mutations of the virus have become more contagious but less deadly. And now the Omicron, we see the data coming out of South Africa and around the world. We know it's less deadly, and yet we're continuing to react as if everyone is at risk and they're not. And the mm -hmm. people who are at risk, we're still not treating them any better than we did in March of 2020. 
Yeah, I think you raise a good point. I mean, the biggest issue is that we have a healthcare system that is kept together by, uh, you know, band-aids. And, and so we've got frontline staff who are absolutely exhausted. Um, no one's short up that support for them. We didn't get booster shots of third shots into arms back in November, as we should have when we saw countries like Israel doing it. Everything has always been so reactive. And so, you know, you look at it now, it's too late. We have to now watch everything implode again when it really was very preventable, especially in Canada, where so many people, David, as you know, are vaccinated and did what they were asked. Well, and, and so I want to come back to that point in a minute, but let's go back to the point about the staff in the hospitals being overwhelmed. The staff in the hospital shouldn't have been overwhelmed if our medical officers of health had devoted their time to increasing the capacities within our hospitals instead of decreasing it. What they did is they sent complete sections of hospitals home because uh, they were exposed to the virus. You never quarantine exposed people, only sick people. In fact, in a hospital, some people could have worked regular shifts, even if they were contagious. We've done that with other viruses before. So we've created part of the overwhelming of our medical system. Our medical officers of health haven't done. It's two years now to be constantly told that we're going to overwhelm our medical system is gross negligence on the half, behalf of the people that run our hospitals. But let's go to the vaccines. Israel is an pra- excellent example. You're right. They did do the booster shots, and yet 93% of the people in hospital in Israel are triple vaccinated. We've proved mm. that these vaccines don't stop you catching it and don't stop you needing uh, hospitalization and don't stop you transmitting the virus. We need to have a very serious discussion about the fact that just putting more jabs in arms is not achieving anything. Well, it's uh, certainly a contentious issue. And if you bring it up, then you get ravaged uh, even questioning it. Um, But, you know, there are many wondering how many jabs we're going to have to get into arms to get this freedom we were promised that we would get. And, you know, I know that they uh, decrease um, illness, uh, but they they don't stop this thing. And so it's very clear vaccines are not we got to get we've got to get figuring this out. And we just aren't. I have no faith in these leaders at all. Clearly, Omicron has, Omicron's bypassed the current vaccines. Getting more jabs of them, it's still bypassing them. The proof is in the pudding. Israel's got three jabs. They've still got a whole whack of people in their hospital with Omicron. The same thing's happening in the UK. The same thing's happening all over the world. So repeating exactly the same process and getting exactly the same result means we're not learning from evidence and we're not learning any from anyone else we keep thinking that covid canada is different than covid anywhere else in the world it's time that we put the right people in charge the premier should be having a complete review of what we're doing stop leaving the medical officers of health in charge. Let them run a medical system and tell them we will not overwhelm our medical system. You people need to figure out how not to do that after two years and to get everyone else back to work and everyone else back in schools so we stop doing massive mental health damage, massive um, um, serious impacts on our other severe illnesses and diseases breakdown of our societal health, destroying our children, literally, and creating massive bankruptcies and debt that's going to last for two generations. We, the damage we're doing is caused by lockdowns, not by COVID. Nonetheless, we will continue on the path I'm sure we are on. David, very much appreciate your time. Always do. Thank you. Absolutely. Cheers.
That's David Redman, who's the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency. I'm sure he'd uh, be happy to talk to any of the premiers and help them out because clearly they need to talk to somebody. I can understand the frustration that parents are feeling. I went through the same uh, puzzlement over the weekend uh, about you know when our kids were starting, which which were who were starting virtually. Turns out they're all virtual. Um, you know all these challenges that parents are trying to adjust to and adapt to at the same time as we're dealing with public health restrictions uh, is not easy. <laughs> Easier for someone like you, because I don't think he's got a clue about the actual frustrations parents are uh, facing uh, today. You know, whether it's the IT issues, the disruptions, I mean, uh, online learning may be necessary. Uh, it, it's just, but it, it's hurting kids. It's doing long-term damage. And two years into this mess, it's frankly inexcusable that we are now back in this position. So for all this nonsense of we're in this together, we are not. Because no matter how taxing even my day is, and it's been taxing, it pales in comparison to, let's say, parents of kids who need supports, those who have things like autism or on the spectrum, who barely had supports before this nightmare started. Moms like uh, Seema Lone, who Karen Lieberman spoke to on Global News, she's got four kids. Two of them have autism. Take a listen to the stress and strain that she is going through. I feel like special needs kids and the families have been punished for being you know, in this position. I, I pity myself, I do, honestly. I feel like I, as a, a special needs parent, I'm being punished for being this in this condition. And I feel like there's no support. There's not. Despite all the promises of supports, they feel very abandoned. Bruce McIntosh is with the Ontario Autism Coalition. He joins us now. Good to have you, Bruce. Hi, Alex. I suspect that, uh, you know, Seema is a, a voice you hear probably often, uh, not just, you know, like you understand the stress with your own children going through this, uh, but, but what, what are you hearing from, the, you know, the autism community about the last two years? <laughs> Frustration and despair. Uh, there's, yeah. there's no, those are the only words I can come up with at this moment. We've been hearing for days the worries about the resumption of school in the new year. Um, and, you know, I hear that mom, and that's, that's what's coming from every parent we're hearing from. But what's so much worse is the impact that this is having on the kids. Because, you know, mom would like some support. Well, even if you can get your special needs child to school, and that is not always the case despite yeah. the ministry's instruction that they should, there's absolutely no guarantee that they'll get the EA that they had when, mm -hmm. when they were attending, you know, before this, this whole mess began with Omicron. Um, we're hearing about boards that have explicitly told their principals that um, children with mobility-based disabilities are welcome to attend in person these days, but that mm. developmental or um, behavioral issues like autism, ADHD, fetal alcohol syndrome, um, they are specifically excluded in at least one board. It's outrageous. And it didn't need to be this way had there been some planning. It's not like no one saw this coming. 
Hey, we went through SARS. We saw this coming a long, long time ago. And I've been talking to you for a long time, Bruce. And, I, you know, I've been covering issues with autism for a very long time. And they were forgotten about, you know, in the Harris years, forgotten about in the Win McGinty years. You know, they've been promised and promised and promised more. And that never really changes. And then the pandemic hits. And yeah, kids are resilient to a point, but they need structure. And when you've got children with autism, they need consistency. And so do you have data? Are you starting to see some of the um, issues and some of the regression? Are, are kids falling behind and regressing? All I can offer you is anecdotal evidence, mm-hmm. um, but that is coming from, for example, um, well, we, we have 13,000 people in our Facebook group. And um, one of our moms started a thread uh, yesterday asking, you know, what board are you in? What is your child's placement? Um, Are they at the higher needs end of the spectrum or the lower needs end? You know, just try to get a picture. Um, Mm -hmm. In every single case, something wasn't right. And we're probably up to, well, there's well over 100 responses by now. Um, and out of, you know, 72 school boards, and, and in some cases what we're hearing is even within a school board, you know, one, one school already has their enhanced PPE, the other is waiting. When you talk about structure, this is, this is just, this is unbelievably hard on our kids. Yeah. They, they thrive on structure, predictability, a schedule, but, mm-hmm. you know, they get told, oh, you're going to school on Wednesday. Oh, no, you're not. There's no bus. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's like, it's, it's like two steps forward, three steps back every single time. And as we know, Bruce, um, two weeks has yet to be two weeks. Uh, these oh. shutdowns of schools have lasted weeks, if not months. I mean, we've gone through this before. And so there's a real concern that, that this could go on for weeks at a time. And, and, and you just hear her voice, those moms. I mean, they're exhausted, exhausted. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it has really been that way. You know, honestly, part of what adds to that, you know, I talk about the unpredictability for the kids and, and so on. But just, you know, that's a big Piece of the mental health problem for parents. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you can't, you know, okay, we were told two days. Then we were told two weeks. Honestly, Alex, do you seriously believe that? Because mm-hmm. I sure don't. And if the province actually had its act together, I mean, look, there have been so many opportunities. You know, the TDSB offered the province a, a scheduling model this is in the summer of 2020 when this whole thing was, you know, in, in, in its infancy. But what about the 2021 school year? And they said, okay, if we shave off 10 minutes of instruction time per day, we can reduce class sizes to 15, guarantee that the kids are physically distanced. Well, the province rejected it. OM. Like, Bruce, yeah, I, I'm going to run out of time, but, you know, what would you say? I mean, look, I think parents at this point uh, just want clarity. Two weeks, four weeks, just give us something so we can measure expectations. What do you say to the premier or Stephen Lecce, who has not come out and said anything? But what, what do you need to hear from them? What do you want from them? Make up your mind and show up. 
make a decision. Don't give us two days rag the puck, two weeks, oh, we're not sure we're going to do all of these things, and then it's clearly not getting done. Just make the call. That would be good enough. Bruce, I very much appreciate your time on this. Um, you know, we'll talk again and certainly see what happens in the next uh, week or so. But uh, very much appreciate you uh, coming on today. Thanks for the opportunity, Alex. Be well. That's you as well. That's Bruce McIntosh, who's with the Ontario Autism Coalition. So, yeah, kids are being affected in all sorts of different ways. But uh, are we in this together? Not a bloody chance. Not a bloody chance. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, And this is Global News Radio.